With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from poor will. May all beings be filled with love and kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Thank you and good evening. I hope you're all doing well. Yeah. Was this uh, timer working okay this afternoon? I noticed that it was turned off when I came in just now. Okay, so, um, well, last night we were talking about the truth of Dukkha and the cause of Dukkha and the cessation of Dukkha. And so I'm just wondering if uh, any of you have had any thoughts on, on that since then or any comments you'd like to make. Yes. I think Dukkha uh, comes from our craving for other things. That's the main reason. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> comes from craving for other things. Or right? craving not to have the things that we don't want. Yeah. 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 I have a question instead of a comment. Um, yeah. Uh, because it comes from craving uh, aversion and ignorance, and the part about ignorance, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about it, because I, I sort of have an idea, but I feel like I'm not paying enough attention. Okay. Well, it's not, uh, it's not quite the way you said there that craving comes from desire and aversion and ignorance, but rather desire and aversion are craving. And craving occurs because there is ignorance. Which is a very important point. You know, we talk about the cessation of craving, uh, which is the means to the cessation of dukkha. And so there's a question, how do we bring about the cessation of craving. And uh, but the three that you mentioned, desire, aversion, and ignorance, these are the three unwholesome roots. And desire and aversion are themselves manifestations of craving. Do you see that? But craving is uh it it Desire. I, I have a, I, I, I'm a little bit fuzzy about craving and desire. Well, you see, uh, yeah, it, craving 
encompasses both the positive side and the negative side. When you have something that you don't want, you have aversion towards it. You have a pain and you have aversion towards the pain. That's a form of craving. Uh, it's a form of desire. It's the desire to have the pain go away or to have the cause of unpleasantness go away or to have the experience of unpleasantness go away. So aversion is a form of craving. So it's just the way we use these words, like if we use the word lust or greed, that's always in the uh, in the sense of wanting to have, wanting to grasp onto the, the positive give me, give me side of it. But aversion is is the opposite side of it, the negative, the take it away, push it away, I don't want it, keep it away. But they're both craving. You see? The craving in this in this regard, uh, the English word craving it means both, and that's what the that's what the Pali word tana means. Tana means uh, that desire to have or to not have. What is craving? Craving is uh, as the craving for existence, and it's a craving for non-existence. Both. It's the craving for sensual pleasures undoubtedly, and it's the craving for pleasure, undoubtedly. Yeah, definitely it is. And it's also the craving for existence. But it's also the craving for the non-existence of what is not wanted and not enjoyed and uh, uh, is uh, unpleasant. And also, it's, it's in the extreme form, it's the craving for non-existence becomes when a person becomes so miserable in their life circumstances that they don't want to live anymore. And that would be an example of aversion? That would be an example of aversion to life, yeah. Okay. But it is, it's still craving. The craving for non-existence is still craving. So the person who, who is, so, is so miserable and despairing and depressed that they want to uh, uh, take their own life, it's the craving for the ending of existence. And this, these are all uh, craving, uh, using the word craving to describe those things that are problems for us. Of course, uh, in terms of that aspect of craving, which is the desire for something, and keep in mind that the desire for liberation, the desire for the dharma, uh, that is that is a positive thing. That motivates us to practice. You know, so, uh, and sometimes that comes up as well. You know, if if, uh, if desire is a problem, then what about the desire to become enlightened? Sometimes you know. <laughs> uh, without Without wisdom, it could be kind of hindered, like, um, like, like I have a lot of desire problems, and that's actually slowing me down. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is true, and, and it can do that. And in fact, uh, even the desire for liberation has to be let go of in order to attain, finally attain liberation. But in the meantime, the desire for liberation motivates you to practice and to get to that point where you need to give it up. 
But yes, yeah, sometimes you get your your desire to to succeed more quickly can just get in your way. And it's good to keep that in mind. Desire as uh, a a process that's taking place in your mind in the moment is uh, it is the essence of dissatisfaction. As dissatisfaction with the dissatisfactoriness of life that makes us want to become liberated. But at the same time, it contributes to that, uh, uh, the fact that you are in a state of dissatisfaction. And it can lead to, uh, any time uh, that state is present, it can lead to other unwholesome states like impatience, doubt, things like that. Um, doubt's one of those things that we need. We need to talk about the five hindrances. We'll probably talk about those tomorrow on doubt. It's a five hindrance. But one of the problems with desire leads to impatience, leads to doubt, which can lead to falling away from the practice, which is a different kind of problem. Um, what's the difference between, um, like, um, is love and love a kind of desire? What's the difference between love and loving kindness and compassion? Very good question. Um, love takes several forms. You know, I, 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 a greedy person loves their money and their possessions. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's obviously not a good thing. But when we say love there, we mean uh, we mean they have a strong attachment to. When we say loving kindness or love in another sense means wanting uh, wanting what's best for someone else, and that's quite different completely. Even if you take uh, the kind of love, romantic love that people experience in uh, relationships, that, uh, that is filled with selfish desire. You want to be with this person because they'll make you happy, because uh, you, know, uh, uh, you are expecting to get pleasure of various kinds and satisfaction of various kinds. And uh, in that case, clearly, although we call we use the same word, love, uh, there's a huge uh, selfish component. I think that's completely obvious to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. But can you have that selfish component that often wish the best for the other person? Yes, you can. And unfortunately, this often happens. You see, when people come together out of their selfish desires and form a couple, generally it can go one of, uh, there's, there's two general ways it can go, with, of course, lots of variations in between. But in general, what you'll see is after a certain period of time, they become dissatisfied with, you know, they, they're no longer satisfied with what they're getting from the other person. And then they split up to go find somebody else that's going to give them more of what they want. Or else, they go into a different place 
and they developed the other kind of love, which is the sincere caring for the happiness and well-being of the other person. And then it no longer is just about getting what what each of them wants and needs from the other. Of course, sometimes one can go one way and one can go the other, too, and it just kind of imbalances. But fortunately, uh, as human beings, we are predisposed to both kinds of love. And as we come to know somebody very closely and very intimately, and to understand them, and to uh, really what happens, we begin to see ourselves and them and them and ourselves so that we understand how they feel and we feel compassion for them and their suffering and then we care about them and their well-being in a more and more unselfish way. And, and so even though uh, we may start out with an entirely selfish kind of love, it can develop into an unselfish kind of love. It goes the other way too. Uh, parents with their children start off, it's very unselfish. Their love just spontaneously comes. They want the best for their children. But as the children grow up and grow older, then the parents start having their own needs, things that they want. And the love of a parent for a child starts to become more and more selfish as time goes by. Most, most of these love relationships between people, unless they are very being wise and spiritually developed people are going to be a mixture of selfish love and uh, unselfish love or loving kindness. And so the quality of the, of the relationships will reflect that. And we see that in, that, that in relationships they provide a certain degree of happiness and satisfaction, but they also provide a certain degree of, of conflict and, and uh, unhappiness as well. Right? Yeah, um, you mentioned that the egoloids, it's a cause, it's a cause of the, the craving. Yes. Uh, and uh, because the craving now it can be satisfied completely. Yes. So um, as a result, it's, it's a hatred. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result, there is hatred. Sometimes there is hatred. Yeah. 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 But the ignorance, that's a very important thing, this ignorance. What do we mean by ignorance uh, as an unwholesome root? And ignorance is something that's always present when craving is present. So there are many aspects to ignorance. One aspect of ignorance is uh, not realizing the truth of the dukkha. Not realizing that you cannot ever make yourself happy through having external things. You know, uh, and as long as you're ignorant of that fact, then you will keep, you'll keep being filled with uh, desire. Because this is what happens uh, to us. Anytime we experience pleasure, we attribute the cause of that pleasure to some object or some circumstance something that takes place. And then uh, what we want is more pleasure, but what we form in our mind is the desire for the thing that we see as the cause of the pleasure. And uh, 
because that's impermanent. And for all the other reasons that we talked about last night, that's always going to lead to dissatisfaction in, in the end. So that's one aspect of ignorance as a, a basis for craving. <laughs> that's like saying, I agree. <laughs> but um, the, it goes much deeper than that, and that's really what insight is about. When we talk about gaining insight, that is overcoming the fundamental ignorance that we have about the way things are, that is at the root of this. Um, when, we, when we overcome the ignorance as to the cause of suffering uh, and the futility of attempting to obtain satisfaction in things of the world, then it's at that point that we have the opportunity to begin doing the actual work of overcoming craving. And that's really what, that's, that's what all of our practice is leading towards. Eventually, that's the heart of what it's about. One absolutely crucial aspect of ignorance is the attachment that we have to our sense of of self, of personhood, because we we think and we act, you know, our behavior and the arising of craving is all rooted in this belief in ourself as a real and persistent entity. You see that? And this is a kind of ignorance that's not easily uprooted because no matter how much you can nod your head and say, yeah, I see that, well, I still feel like a self, right? That's what you're going to come back to. And when something hurts me, uh, immediately comes the craving to eliminate the cause of that pain. And when something causes this self-pleasure, then immediately comes the desire to obtain more of the thing that caused that pleasure. And so uh, this is the part that's very difficult for us to, to overcome this illusion. And that's what, we're, that's what we're working on. And I'm going to start getting down to the nitty-gritty of that. Really, we talk about the four truths. The truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, and the cessation of dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is the path to the cessation of dukkha. Also called the Eightfold Noble Path. And we're following that path right now in this, in this retreat. The Eightfold Noble Path is divided up into three parts. The first part is virtue. The second part is concentration or meditation. And the third part is wisdom. And 
these all work together, but they build on one another. The first part of the Eightfold Path is uh, virtue, and it consists of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, these three things. This is the foundation. Without this foundation, there's a limit to how far you can progress on a spiritual path. If you don't, if you don't work on virtue, and if you don't perfect your virtue, then you will not be able to succeed in the next two uh, parts of the Eightfold Path. The second part is called concentration or meditation, and it too has three parts to it, which is right concentration, right mindful awareness, and right effort. And the practice, the practices that we're doing here are for the development of right concentration and right mindful awareness. And of course, we're making use of right, right effort in some, in some sense in order to accomplish that. But let me just speak of right concentration. What is right concentration? Right concentration is concentration that is developed uh, to a very refined stage called samatha. This is where the mind becomes uh, trained so that anything that you, that the, in, wherever and however you place the attention, it remains there. So if you wish to investigate an object and you direct your attention to it, it doesn't wander off. It remains on that object. There is single-pointedness and unification of mind as a part of concentration. And I talked about this the first night. Single-pointedness is that not only does your mind remain uh, where you place it, but it does so unwaveringly it's not just sort of wobbling about here and there and getting stronger and weaker and expanding and contracting the scope of your awareness. But if you and you have control of it, if you are examining the entirety of your body, if you're examining the entirety of the objects of the room, you're single-pointedly focused on that. It's not it's not changing, shifting, expanding, contracting, moving around. Or if you are single-pointedly focused on uh, something like the, the feeling of, of pleasant and unpleasant that arise at, in conjunction with individual thoughts in your mind. That's very, very focused. You're excluding everything else, but your mind is trained so it allows you to do that. Uh, these are the qualities of the mind in samatha. In the unification of the mind, your mind is all these different processes going in different directions. When they all come together so that all parts of your mind are working in harmony and cooperation towards the same uh, objective, that's unification of mind. Now what happens with unification of mind is that there arises meditative joy and bliss. 
Uh, as a part of meditative joy and bliss, you experience great bodily pleasure, but you experience happiness of mind as well. And this is part of samatha. And that as a result of that uh, bliss and, uh, and uh, pleasure and focused attention, there develops a profound tranquility. And as a result of that tranquility, you experience equanimity, so that although the things that you experience are pleasurable and painful, you're not, you're not driven by desire and aversion. You have the equanimity to uh, accept them as they are without, without resting after them or pushing them away. This is a state of samatha. This is concentration that uh, is absolutely necessary for, uh, for the third part of the Eightfold Path, which is wisdom. But you cannot achieve samatha unless you have mastered the virtue aspect. If you have been living in an unvirtuous way, your mind will be agitated by by worry, by remorse. Your mind will be disturbed by ill will towards those that you've been in conflict with. And so you can sit and meditate and you'll come to a point where you have uh, wonderful concentration in terms of single-pointedness, but the mind will not relax into that and it will not become effortless and the joy and the pleasure and the happiness will not arise because your mind is agitated by worry and remorse and ill will. So that's the sense in which concentration is limited by uh, the development of virtue. Right mindful awareness, that high level of, of mindful awareness depends upon uh, developing that concentration. So all of these things work together. And uh, right effort, I'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's just move on. The third part of the Eightfold Path, the last two, the first three you'll recall were right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the second three were right concentration, right mindful awareness, and right effort. The last two elements of the Eightfold Path, which are the division called wisdom, constitute right view and right understanding, or sometimes it said right intention and right view. Uh, but this is where the wisdom comes in. This is where being able to understand things as they really are, and wisdom, of course, is the opposite of ignorance. The more wisdom you have, the less ignorance. The less ignorance you have, then the less you are subject to craving. And the less you are subject to craving, the more do you are free and do So that's the way in which the Eightfold Path is a path that leads to the cessation of craving, which in turn uh, removes the cause of suffering and leads to the cessation of suffering. There seems to be many people who are um, uh, doing wrong speech, uh, action, and livelihood, but they don't even know that they're doing it. Does that mean they have maybe less remorse, less, uh, uh, less worry? 
I doubt it. <laughs> I, I think that uh, probably the more likely case is that somebody who is engaging in a lot of wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood without even realizing it is engaging in even more that they are aware of. So that they probably have uh, plenty of cause for remorse and, and worry. I think that the like for example, there are many people out there doing harm to other people and they go really deeply in their past. Yes, they can they can but you know I I think that it's it's impossible for them to completely uh, deny in their own hearts the, the harm that they cause others. A little blind faith. Yeah. That's gonna does that mean they have, they're going to have less remorse? They're going to have re less remorse in the immediate moment, immediate while, moment. while the blind faith is strong. But, uh -huh. you know. Uh, blind faith is, it's a faith too, just like all things. That's right. And the ones that faith, they will feel the remorse. That's right. And, and I believe at a very, very deep level in their heart, even while uh, through their, their faith <coughs> they deny it, they, they know that they harm that they cause to others is not a good thing. Right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. What happens if, like, um, if someone becomes a soldier or a policeman or an owner of a restaurant? Mm -hmm. Like, um, how do you know when you're doing this or the wrong? Like, what, what do you find? Yeah, like, right. what do you find? Mm -hmm. defines right livelihood. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there is there is a very simple rule that you can apply to anything that helps greatly in deciding that. If what you are doing is causing suffering or has the potential to cause suffering to either others or to yourself in the future in some way, that's probably not right. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and so that's, that is the simplest thing that you can go by. If you look at what right speech includes, which is refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, uh, and gossip, these are all things that uh, are either immediately harmful or potentially harmful to other people, right? And if you're not sure whether something is uh, gossip or divisive speech or, or so, all you have to ask yourself is, what if someone else was saying this about me out of here? And that will give you a pretty strong indication. You know, and likewise with uh, uh, right action, which is refraining from taking what's not freely given and and one that actually the first part of right action is just simply not causing uh, harm to other beings. Um, you know, we can we can make up all kinds of scenarios, or we can find ourselves in a situation and rationalize that well, this isn't really uh, taking what's not freely given. But uh, if you carefully examine the impact that it might have on someone else and put yourself in uh, somebody else's position, then you can see 
uh, if somebody else would see it differently than you do, then uh, you know probably it's uh, a wrong action. But it's not these things. Perfecting your virtue isn't taking a set of rules and following up to the letter. Perfecting virtue is working within your own heart, examining all of your actions as they as they're committed or as the as the possibility for their commission comes to mind. And examining them in your own heart and making your own decision. This is the perfection of virtue. And your interpretation uh, of what is virtuous and what is not will change over time as you as your perception becomes more refined and as your mind becomes more refined. Uh, to start out with, if you just give up murdering people, that may be a big step for you. <laughs> but there's a long way to go beyond that. Also, although in the uh, in the basic teachings, the presentation of it usually stops at not committing the acts that are harmful to somebody else. The perfection of virtue actually can go much beyond that because uh, right, right speech can mean not only saying things that are, are, are false or harmful to others, but it can be using speech wisely. It can be using speech in such a way that it is helpful and beneficial to others. It can include refraining from speech when what you might say uh, has the potential to uh, create a problem. So uh, there is this other dimension. Uh, the precept against not taking what is freely given can mean not only taking something that somebody else's, but it could mean when you're sharing something, uh, coming from a place of generosity. You know, do you take the last cookie on the plate or do you leave it for somebody else? Okay. I thought it was really wonderful, but is that what the precept of um, that it was, was that is, is that what the Buddha uh, meant when he made the precept is that? The precept is a guideline for you to develop your own oh, okay. virtue. Okay, so it's kind of like just the beginning. It's, a, it's, a, it's just the beginning and it's open-ended. Uh, not taking uh, other other people's property can also extend into protecting somebody else's property. You see that somebody else uh, forgot and left something outside their door that somebody might steal, and so you take that and you put it in a safe place for it. You know, there's all kinds of ways that you can go beyond just the most basic interpretation of it. All of which, and it comes back to the meditation aspect of it. All of which is going to create in you a mind that uh, is susceptible to inner peace. Okay. And that's, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the samasat, uh, when you, uh, you never can reach the higher level if you don't have right um, speech and, and action uh, and right people. So, um, just by purely practicing meditation, actually we really cannot reach the, the, the certain level unless you 
um, I mean, it seems like you did together with them. I'm not sure. By, yes, without, by practicing meditation alone, mm -hmm. that, that's not enough. If you, if you meditate five hours a day, and then in between meditation sessions you go out and lie about people and slander and uh, steal things from the office, and uh, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be enough by itself. Because no, not that bad, but... Not that bad, I know. But you, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was exaggerating, but... Yeah, exactly. You uh, to really be successful on the eightfold path, uh, you meditate, but every other part of your life is important as well. You have to purify your your, your virtue. So. Well, you know, on the other hand, when practice on meditation, maybe that brings you more um, self awareness or wisdom, so you will have better. Uh, exactly. Yes, exactly, because that is the problem, isn't it? So it's fun to say, okay, I'm going to keep the precepts. But then you go out there and you find yourself doing the same things over and over again that you've always done. Changing your behavior is much more than a matter of making a decision to take precepts and even repeating them every day. You have to have the mindful awareness to recognize when you're about to do something that is a violation of the precepts. The two work together. The meditation provides you with the mindful awareness that you need to change your behavior. And then as you perfect your virtue, then this gives you the, uh, this prepares your mind to enter into profound states of, uh, of concentration and insight. Absolutely. I'm glad you I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah. So here you are. In talking about right concentration, uh, it's concentrated to samatha. Uh, I don't really understand the samatha, but uh, the ten stage is it that the last stage is it could be samatha? I'm sorry, the. the okay. Um, you're talking about the right concentration. Yeah. Is uh, to samatha. Yes. But I I don't really understand samatha. And the ten stage you give us mm -hmm. about uh, meditation. Yeah. Uh, the last stage is this could be samatha. That's samatha. That's right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, the eighth, ninth, and tenth stages are all samatha, but the tenth stage is the perfected or completed samatha. Okay, uh, one more question. Uh, about the uh, ignorance, women, or similar. Um, ignorance. Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, we are in this situation, could I say, first of all, we are not really known the impermanence. That's right. Emptiness. That's right, yes. That's, yes, it's, it's the impermanence, the, the emptiness, and the dissatisfactoriness. These are the these three are the three characteristics of all phenomena. They're the three characteristics that, uh, of, of all of our experience. Is that everything is impermanent, everything is empty, including the self. So that's anatta, or selflessness. The self is empty as well. Okay. 
So the second, the first is impermanence, and the second is the emptiness, both of self and of the objects that we cling to. And the third is dissatisfactoriness. And we've talked about dissatisfactoriness. We've talked about the dukkha, the characteristic of, of dukkha. But yes, it's the ignorance of these three things. And ultimately, these are the three things that we want to gain profound insight into. When we have a profound understanding that of, of impermanence, and impermanence isn't just that things change. Impermanence is that there really are no things. There is only change. And that the appearance of things is something that we, that our mind generates because everything is constantly changing. You know, do you know what I mean there? Everything is constantly changing. And uh, it, it, it's our mind that, that leads us to look at things instead of uh, look at objects as being somehow a stable and relatively enduring uh, separate entity, but that separate entity is just, it's constantly changing, it's come together uh, from other parts through causes and conditions, and it is also uh, going to likewise uh, dissolve and disappear eventually through causes and conditions, all of its parts continuing to, to interact with the rest of, of everything that is. So there, there is only impermanence. As a matter of fact, at another level, the only way that we know that there are things is through our senses. And if we examine our senses, sensation is constantly changing. Sensation constantly changes. So there is this continuous flux of sensation out of which our mind generates the idea of all of these objects and of the world as a whole. And so when we say things are empty, we mean they're empty of having a nature of being the way that they appear to us. Because that's just something our mind has projected to explain the sensations that we experience. And I can go into that in more detail, but uh, this is the aspect of emptiness. And the self that we think we are is likewise Really, in the root, the self is just a creation of our mind as well. And so, the common, ordinary way of thinking of reality is that there exists a universe of objects that are self-existently real from their own side. And then, here I am in the middle of this universe of objects, and I am a separate, self-existently real entity. Is that not how you're used to thinking of things? You are a separate self in the middle of a world of independently existing objects. And that's a mistaken way of thinking that gets us into all of this problem. Because then, when the self that we think we are experiences pleasure and pain, then we have craving for uh, uh, both uh, the, 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 the desire to have and the desire to avoid things in order to make ourselves happy. And 
So the third characteristic, the third part of the illusion, is that we imagine things being in this way and that if only we can manipulate this external world of objects in the right way, that we will then, that the self will become happy and free from suffering. And people, the world is full of people holding that view and proving over and over again that doesn't work. Okay. So we're looking for the better way, the way of deeper understanding. Now, I think what this brings us to the, the insights that you need to, uh, that I need to point the way to so that you can discover in your meditation. And we begin with correcting the view. I said wisdom was right view and right intention. And we'll talk about the right intention another time. But right now we're talking about right view. So I want you to start confirming through your meditation experience the way things really are. Now, I think that you may have already discovered this, but if not, confirm it for yourself. What you are conscious of is one of two kinds of things. We could call those things material things and mental things. Does, is this a sensible way to divide the world to you? There's the physical and material, and then there's that which is mental. But if we examine this a little more closely, how do we know of the existence of material things? And how do we know the nature of material things? Do we know material objects directly? Or we know them actually by means of our senses, right? And just to make this clear, imagine that you were born blind. And I say blind because as we talked about earlier, sight is a sense that already has the tendency to project identity of objects very strongly. If you were blind and you had to learn everything about the world only through touch, you have only the sensations through touch, and in your mind you have to figure out how these different things that you feel are related to each other. You know the story about the blind man and the elephant? Right? Everybody knows that story. So if you were a blind person, the only way that you could have a clear idea of an elephant is you would have to feel every part of the elephant and you would create an idea in your mind of what an elephant was based on those sensations. Well, that's what you do anyway. You're not blind, so you just add to that the image of the elephant that comes from your eyes. But actually what I'm pointing out to you is 
the two kinds of things that you know, the two kinds of things that you become conscious of are not material objects and mental objects, but they are sensations and mental objects. These are the only two things you have. Sensations. Sensations from the five bodily senses and mental objects. Now, mental objects, what do I mean by mental objects? Those are things that are known directly to the mind. A thought, an emotion, a feeling of pleasant and unpleasant. These are all examples of mental objects. Concepts, the idea of a car or a bird or a person, a cup, uh, an apple. These are all mental objects in your mind, right? So we would like to think that we understand the world and material objects, but what I want you to confirm through your practice is indeed everything you know about the world is a story your mind has made up to explain sensations. Does everyone follow this? Because your entire existence, your entire life, has consisted of a series of conscious experiences where you have felt one kind of sensation or another. You have, you have seen color with your eyes. You felt hot or cold or hot or soft, hot or, or cold or, or uh, uh, soft or hard or other things, all of the different sensations you have with your body. Your entire knowledge of your body comes from sensation. Sounds, smells. Your mind has put these all together. But the world that you live in, each of us lives in a world that our mind has created to explain the sensations that we have experienced, to make sense of them, we created a, a model of a real world in our mind. And we think that's the real world. That's where it exists, is in your own mind. And so that's, that's one of the things I want to satisfy, you to satisfy yourself, first of all, that this is true. I want you to have completely satisfied. And then I want you to continue to remind yourself for the rest of your life until you become enlightened that the world that you think exists out there really exists in here. And all you've had to go by is the sensations, the eyes, the ears, in making up that world. Yeah? Um, if that's the case, then how do we distinguish whether um, uh, Say, for example, sometimes, you know, we'll have dreams. Yeah. Then in, in the dreams, uh, images are very vivid that, that when we wake up, we still feel like that we haven't really know that was a dream. So how do I know that I'm not dreaming right now, that this is actually a dream and I'm actually supposed to wake up in a uh, different mm -hmm. 
very, very good, very good point. A very good point, and it's something for you all to think about. How do you know? Because when you realize that your mind is not only has created this world, then immediately you realize that last night or the night before, or many other nights, your mind has done that exact thing. But it's been a completely different world than this one, with completely different objects and different places and different people, right? And so this is this is very important because first of all it makes you aware of the fact that indeed if you were doubting that your mind's capable of creating the whole world, all you have to do is think about the fact that it's done it many times before. When not only is it has your mind done it, it's done it when you're asleep. <laughs> so your mind's capable of it. Right. But yes, and then you come down to the question, well, how do I know that this isn't a dream right now? And I'll tell you uh, many very wise people, uh, philosophers of, of all sorts, have pondered this question. And the answer is, and you'll find the same answer yourself, there is absolutely no way to know with certainty that this is not a dream. There is not. And in a sense, the answer, uh, the, the reason why that is, is that because it is a mind-created reality, it is a different kind of mind-created reality than the one we call dreams. And we have to recognize that. And it would be a mistake to say, oh, that means that this is all a dream. Because this is different than what we call dreams. But you can never know for sure whether this particular moment is a dream or not. Now, how can you tell? There are some differences. There's a very important thing. All those things that you call dreams lack a certain kind of consistency that the world that your mind has created based on sense experience lacks. In the world your mind has created based on sense experience, if you jump out of a window, you're likely to, to die or break a leg or something like that. But in that kind of reality you experience in dreams, it doesn't have that consequence. In the world your mind has created to explain sensation, If you take a physical object and you put it over there and then you do something else and you go back to it a minute later, it will still be there and it will be the same thing. It will feel the same way and it will look the same way. Whereas in your dreams, things lack that consistency. How often in a dream do you dream you have something and then it's gone and you can't make it come back or it changes into something else? So the one single thing that you do have to go by is the consistency that what we call waking reality has. It distinguishes it from those many other realities that uh, are what we normally conventionally call dreams. The way of stating this is to say the waking reality is constrained by the senses. Dream reality is not so constrained. Dream reality can violate certain kinds of rules of causality. In waking reality, 
Um, no matter how you flap your wings, you won't fly. But in dream reality, sometimes you do. And if you ever have dreams of flying, maybe not flapping your arms, maybe jumping up and down. It's yeah, very often people have dreams of flying. But this reality is constrained by your senses. But I mean, how, how would you know you flew anyway? I mean, if you decide to raise your arm, how do you know you raised your arm? Well, you can see it go up. And if your eyes are closed, you can feel it. You know, and in your dream, you can do things that would otherwise be impossible and see them happen and feel them happen. But in this reality, it's constrained by the senses and the senses and, and there's rules of causality that are going to be followed. So this is really the only way that you can distinguish between the two. And you can never tell that this is not a dream. But you can tell that something belongs to what we conventionally call dream reality if it lacks that consistency. If you can find if you find that you can fly, then you immediately suspect it's a dream. If you're reading a book and you turn the page and, and you see a, a, a person's face looking back at you, a pretty good chance it's probably a, a, a dream. Right? If you jump out of a building and uh, you're still all right afterwards, it's probably a dream. So, yeah. Uh, are we... Uh And 
we do share much of the reality that each of us has made up uh, in our own mind does share much in common with the reality that other people have made up in their mind. And we can call that conventional reality. So we're, we're not negating all, all of that entirely. Okay? But it is a very important sense. And as you progress in insight, your understanding will deepen. But you can see with a little bit of reflection that the reality that you live in is created in your mind. And that is why two people in exactly the same situation, one can be happy and one can be sad. Because they're not really, to, we, as a third person, we say, oh, they're both in the same situation, but they're not. Each of them is living in a different world. Even the same person. I think the same thing, the same thing, because one might be happy, one might be sad. That's absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The world that we create and the self that we are is created by our mind, and it's constantly changing. It is. It's not, it's not even the same day to day. It's not even the same moment to moment. So it's, you know, it, it's impermanent as well as, as, as empty. This goes to a much more profound level of understanding. And it's actually when you recognize the impermanence, the emptiness, and the unsatisfactoriness of things as we normally perceive them, as the way your mind usually makes things happen, that when you see that clearly, your mind will stop doing that. And you'll have the experience uh, of understanding how things really are and you will become, through that knowledge, you'll become liberated from the causes of suffering. The first thing that happens is that you are no longer entrapped by the belief in and attachment to your personal self. And that right away removes a lot of suffering. How much of your personal suffering is related to your sense of self, your ego, of I, I am this, I, 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 me, mine, this is mine, I lose it, I'm unhappy, uh, I, me, and mine. Right away, a lot of, of your suffering and happiness will be eased greatly just when you can see through the illusion of I, me, and mine. Yeah? So, question about I and uh, awareness. So, uh, through the vision, we should. Um, try to uh, remove the illusion of the eye itself. But we also need to develop the awareness. So what's the component of the awareness? Where does it come from? Uh, yes, the question is, if, if, if there is no I. self, where does awareness come from? Yes, so what's the, yeah. the content of awareness? Well, the, let's just leave it at the moment that the awareness is not because there is a self that is, that is behind all of this. Okay? This is what you have, this is one of the main obstacles to, 
to this is we keep having all these different kinds of experiences where there's I, I see, I hear, I feel, I think. And we have this concept of a self that's embedded in all of our experience. That is the hardest thing to overcome. Uh, as far as, and, and I wasn't, you see, the easiest thing for you to understand is impermanence. And likewise, relatively easy to understand is the emptiness of the world, of the, the external world, in the sense that I've been talking about tonight. It's, it's easy to understand impermanence, and it's easy to understand that the world that you know is a projection of your own mind. The world that you live in is a projection of your own mind. And so start with these. These are the easiest things to get a grasp on. As you grasp them more and more clearly, and as you come to be able to distinguish very clearly that things appear to have some enduring independent existence, but that is only an appearance in my mind. And as that becomes clearer, then you begin to have more and more deeper understanding of this truth of, of dukkha, of suffering. Because then you, the more that you can see that everything is impermanent and everything is empty of any kind of nature of actually being the way we perceive it from its own side, that its appearance comes from our mind, then comes the realization that, well, being fooled by disappearance will only cause me suffering. And grasping to that, which is not what it appears to be, will only cause me suffering. And grasping to that, which is bound to pass away, because it's the result of causes and conditions and is impermanent, is bound to cause me suffering. So a lot, these are the insights that you want to develop to start with. You will not really overcome the belief in your personal self until you have reached the first stage of enlightenment. And you will be an Aryan being, a noble being, uh, uh, an enlightened being, not fully enlightened, but on the first stage, at, at the point that you have an experience that penetrates, that, that gives you the penetrating understanding that indeed the self that you cling to is just a creation of your mind. Now do definitely come as close to that understanding as you can. See how, see how you, you, your mind artificially constructs this idea of who you are and how it believes in those things. And keep seeing more and more clearly the illusory nature of that. But don't expect to actually penetrate into the true understanding of anatta, of, of, of the fact that, this, that there is no enduring self, or the emptiness of self, until you've reached the first stage of enlightenment. And then in a moment it will become perfectly clear, and that will change your life thereafter. But my question is, what, what is awareness in the meditation? What is that? What is awareness? Just leave it at it. Awareness is something that you're trying to cultivate because you need to use it to gain this understanding. 
Okay. Well, first of all, does that satisfy you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you want a philosophical answer, right? It's not a puzzle, you know. Thank you. 